Revelation chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 10 through 20 today. Revelation chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. I actually want to back up to last week's study. After last week's study, well, a brother pointed out that Revelation 1.8 is in red letters. And he said this because I had taught that verse 8 belongs to the words of God and not the words of Jesus. Now, we know in the Bible that in the New Testament, the red letters are signifying the words of Jesus. But we need to understand that red letters are an addition to the word of God. It, it didn't come with red letters when they first wrote this. John thought, oh, I need to put this in red letters that people know who I'm talking about. He may not have even had a red letter pen that he could have written with. Maybe he did. But it's important for us to realize that the red letters are there to help us in the New Testament. But the whole Bible is the whole counsel of God. And that's something that we need to understand. It's not just the red letters that should concern us in the Bible and God's word. It's all the words that we find in Scripture from Genesis to Revelation. Now, for me, and I admitted this last week, the difficulty in verse 8 regards the title at the very end of verse 8. I'm going to go ahead and read that verse to catch us up. It says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. Well, for me, it's that title, the Almighty, that kind of trips me up as far as whether this is the words of Jesus or that concerning God the Father. Also would like to uh, point out that I don't have a red-letter Bible. I can't just look at my Bible and say, oh, yeah, that's Jesus. In fact, I like it this way because it makes me think through the passages without having a predetermined outcome already set before me, like verse 8 in red letters. Oh, that's Jesus speaking. That's not in my mind when I look at Scripture because this particular Bible that I teach from is not a red-letter Bible. The computer notes that I have, they don't come in red letters, so I'm kind of forced to look at each passage, each verse, and determine who is speaking, um, what it's saying to us. Now, I had said last week, I'm just taking from my notes from last week. I believe that this is a declaration of God the Father. In the Old Testament, we find that one of the names for God is El Shaddai. God Almighty is how that is translated. And this is the name that God declared of himself to Abraham, the Almighty. And this may be a title, and this is what I had mentioned last week, may be a title that's reserved for the Father only. Now, I want to point out that commentators kind of go back and forth on who's speaking here in verse 8. So I'm going to fill your mind with just a bunch of stuff. Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote concerning verse 8, the last phrase of 7 really belongs to verse 8. Even so, amen. Is spoken by God. The full utterance is spoken by God, according to Barnhouse. Yes, it is true. I am Alpha and Omega. He who is, who was, and who shall come, the Almighty. Now, to get another view of this, we go to Ironside and his commentary. Here on Revelation verse 8, Ironside says, verse 8, we read the words of the Son, 
who declares himself to be Jehovah also, one eternally with the Father, he who is Alpha and Omega, the first and the last of the Greek alphabet, the beginning and the ending. He is, he was, he is to come. He is El Shaddai, the Almighty, who appeared to Abraham. May our hearts be occupied with him and his return be our blessed hope. And so here we have two different commentators writing two different views on the very same verse. Barnhouse saying, this belongs to God. Ironside saying, this no, it belongs to Jesus. Now, we do know in John 10:30 that Jesus declared, I and my Father are one. And so there is a unity that we have to consider when looking at the Godhead. I and my Father are one. But I had mentioned last week in Revelation 21, verse 22, that John says, I saw no temple in it, but the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And so there John distinguished between the Lord God Almighty, God the Father, and the Lamb, God the Son, the two being one, but being the temple in the new heaven and the new earth. So it's evident that Bible scholars, teachers, do not have a consensus on whether verse 8 belongs to God the Father or it belongs to God the Son. I even thought I'd take a look at the founding of the Calvary Chapel movement, founder, I should say, Pastor Chuck Smith, what he wrote regarding verse 8. And here's what I discovered. In 1977, in a book that Chuck Smith published called What the World is Coming to, he said this. In describing his eternal nature, God declares that he is Alpha and Omega, Greek for A to Z, the first and the last letters. God is the totality. He is the beginning and the end. It all started with God. It all ends with God. He is, he was, he is to come. He is eternal. So we might be thinking, well, Chuck, thanks for settling that. You said it's God. And then I looked up his 8,000 series sermon, and I couldn't figure out the year of the 8,000 series. I tried to search online to find the date, I think it's in the 1990s when he taught through the book of Revelation. And here's what he said. Verse 8, again, we're looking at verse 8 only. Then the declaration, as Jesus speaks to John, he said, I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is, which was, which is to come, the Almighty. Alpha, of course, the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Omega, the last letter of the Greek alphabet. He is saying, I am the totality. I am complete. I am everything. I am A to Z. Everything in between. The completeness of the Lord. The first and the last. The beginning and the ending. Which is, which was, which is to come. The Almighty. So clearly this is a challenging verse. Even Pastor Chuck flipped on what he had said about it. And so I'm going to kind of leave it there. You can determine whether it belongs in red letters. I have shared that I believe that it is speaking of God. And as we go through the book of Revelation, we are going to see things distinctly pointing to God the Father and much of the book of Revelation distinctly pointing to God the Son. We're going to have this debate, I guess, when we get into like chapter 4 and John's caught up into the heavenly throne room, we're going to have things that seem to rightly point to Jesus. And then the very next verse, we'll discover that the lamb is there, that he's separate from God the Father. And so 
we'll be looking at this as we go through it. Verse 8 is one of those questionable verses, but I don't think we should uh, let it kind of destroy faith. It's a matter of kind of looking at Scripture and what does Scripture say and commentary of the Word of God concerning the Word of God. And it could rightly apply to Jesus. I believe personally that El Shaddai, perhaps distinctly speaking of God the Father, but maybe one day you'll change my opinion and I'll teach it entirely different. If I have an 8,000 series, I might come back and say something else if I ever get to that point. This we do know. In the Revelation, Jesus unveils information about himself, about the seven churches of Asia, and the future events that coincide with the Great Tribulation and the Lord's second coming. God gave this revelation to Jesus, who sent it to his servant John by his angel. The importance of Jesus is seen throughout the book of Revelation. It is the revelation, the unveiling of Jesus Christ. The book begins with the revelation of Jesus and his glorified body and closes with a cry from Jesus. The very last verse in Revelation 22:20 20 says, Surely I am coming quickly. Warren Worsby wrote concerning this book, You must not divorce the person, Jesus, from the prophecy, for without the person, there could be no fulfillment of the prophecy. Therefore, the person of Jesus Christ is a key to understanding the book of Revelation. Well, today we're going to pick up the second half of chapter 1, verses 10 through 20. We're going to see, as I titled this, Alive Forevermore. In verses 10 and 11, we're going to see a voice as a trumpet. Verses 12 through 16, the glorified Savior. And 17 through 20, alive forevermore. I'll go ahead and read the first point, which is a voice as a trumpet, verses 10 and 11, and open us in prayer. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see right in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, in Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia and Laodicea. Father, we pray that you would just help us to gain a greater understanding of your word and a greater understanding of yourself as we look at this book, the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we see, Lord, that here you are declaring, I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. And so, Lord, give us a greater understanding of yourself this day, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I'm going to start off again with a controversy. In verse 10, there's a couple of different opinions on the phrase, in the Spirit, on the Lord's day. And some believe that John is telling us that he was worshiping Jesus on a Sunday morning. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, on a Sunday. And this is because Jesus rose from the grave on a Sunday, 
The day of Pentecost came on a Sunday morning, 50 days later from his resurrection. And we find that the church often in scripture gathered to worship the Lord on the first day of the week on a Sunday. Others believe that John may be referring to having been spiritually caught up to the Lord's day. So I was spiritually caught up unto the Lord's day, transported unto the Lord's day. And for most of the book of Revelation deals with the last day events that we discover will contain the great tribulation, the second coming of Jesus Christ, the millennial kingdom, uh, the new heaven and new earth, the judgment of all things. John saying, I was caught up unto the Lord's day. The spirit took me unto the Lord's day. Now, I looked at this in verse 10, and I, I discovered that verse 10 in my Bible, New King James, has spirit capitalized. That S is in a capital letter. In fact, the Greek, the original Greek was written in all capital letters. And so when determining whether something should be a capital letter or not, you have to look at the context of the passage, see what it's talking about. I actually looked at the King James, the Holman New Standard Bible, a bunch of different translations. Everybody capitalized spirit on this, saying that this is the Holy Spirit speaking, except it doesn't contain a definite article. It's pneuma in the Greek word, It didn't have a definite article in it. The original Greek did not say the spirit. It just simply said spirit. I was in the spirit. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day. The contemporary English version has it this way. On the Lord's day, the spirit took control of me. That's a pretty good understanding of it. The Lord was sending information, giving John information. And it happened on the Lord's day. And I love that. Because I believe as believers in Jesus Christ, we should, and I said this way back, and I remember the year because we had pens made up with this on there. Very simply, it just said, Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, come expectantly. Come expectantly. That's how we should come to church. Here we are together on the Lord's Day. And we should expect that the Lord would want to teach his people as they gather together, that the Spirit would desire to Help us to understand his word. Well, for John, he goes on and he says, I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. He didn't say it was a trumpet. He says, as of a trumpet, the sound, the blast, saying, verse 11, this is Jesus speaking. I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book. As John worshiped the Lord on the Lord's day, He heard this loud voice as a trumpet coming from behind him. And the voice, it wasn't an inner voice of his conscience kind of speaking to him. It wasn't a still small voice of God, which Elijah heard as we read about in 1 Kings 19, 12. It was the voice of Jesus. It came as of a sound of a trumpet, a blast of a trumpet. The voice was directional. John said it was coming from behind me. It was the voice of Jesus proclaiming that I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And this is a portion of that same proclamation that we read about in verse 8, which we've already addressed a couple of times now. He goes on to say, I am Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia. 
And then he says the seven churches there in Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And Jesus commanded John to write these things, the things that he would see, to write them in a book, that the book should be sent to the seven churches. And although we'll get more information about the seven churches in chapters 2 and 3, last week I had mentioned this in our study concerning the seven churches. The seven churches in Asia Minor, when John wrote the Revelation, these were given as representative of the typical church of that day. Moreover, the seven churches also have been depicted as points in history, which we'll look at when we get in chapters 2 and 3, as depicting the condition of the church since the Lord's ascension back into heaven, the condition of the church for a certain time period for the last 2,000 years, which puts us in the age of Laodicea, the dead church, or the lukewarm church, I should say. And finally, each of the seven churches, I believe that they can be representative of any church at any time, at any time since the time of Christ and his ascension back into heaven. We find the conditions of such churches. There are churches that they are Philadelphia. They are the church of brotherly love. They are uh, Smyrna, the suffering church. They are Laodicea, the lukewarm church. Each To each of these churches, Jesus says, and we'll see this in chapters 2 and 3, to each one, he will say, I know your works. He knows our works. And when worshiping the Lord on the Lord's day, we should expect to hear from Jesus, knowing that he knows us, he knows our hearts, he knows our works, but also we understanding our need of Jesus. We should come expectantly, come saying, Lord, I'm ready to hear from you. And maybe we'll be in worship one day and we'll hear something from behind. Maybe it will be a quiet voice as Elijah heard on the day that the Lord spoke to him when he was actually hiding in a cave, hiding from a queen that had threatened to take his life. Maybe it will be a voice directional from behind that will be loud and clear. Maybe it'll be something in scripture that will just prick or penetrate our hearts. When worshiping our Lord on the Lord's day or any day, we should anticipate, we should expect to hear from Jesus. So verses 12 through 16, we'll look at the context, the glorified Savior. John says, Then I turned, reading in verse 12, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass, as refined in a furnace, his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. His countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. During Jesus' earthly ministry, John was accustomed to being in the presence of Jesus. For, I believe, like three-plus years, John had hung out with Jesus. In fact, 
three times in the Gospel of John, John referred to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Also during the Last Supper, we find that John was leaning on the bosom of Jesus. John was very close to Jesus during his earthly ministry. John understood that he was loved by Jesus. I am, John tells us, I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. John, Jesus loves everybody. Yeah, I know, but I'm special in Jesus' eyes. Shouldn't it be that way for us as well? We know that Jesus loves everyone, but I'm sorry, I'm his favorite. At least that's how I should feel, and that's how you should feel as well. John was very close to Jesus, and he knew that he was loved by him. And now John sees Jesus in a way that he had never seen him before. He saw him there, standing in his full glory. He says in verse 12, as I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden stands, lampstands, and in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man. John turned, and he saw Jesus in his glorified splendor. The first thing he noticed was the seven golden lampstands, which represents the seven churches. We're going to learn this in verse 20. No debate. Jesus tells us exactly what the seven golden lampstands represent. And we learn that in verse 20. Now we discover gold is the most frequently mentioned metal in the Old Testament. And often gold would be described with words like pure, refined, finest, fine. It's associated with this word gold in the Bible. And in refining gold, they're taking out the impurities in the refining process. And through Jesus Christ, the refining process takes place in the lives of believers. He refines us. He makes us pure because of his work upon the cross, because of his work upon our lives. Peter wrote about this in 1 Peter 1.7, saying that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to the praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That the genuineness of your faith being more precious than that of gold. Peter said gold that perishes. We see it on this earth as something that is lasting. But it's our faith, Peter says, not gold. Right now they're telling you, you should invest in gold. You're going to be in trouble if you don't invest in gold. And I think, too late. I'm already in trouble. But it's my faith that is lasting. Not those things that I put my hope in on, upon this earth. One like the Son of Man, verse 13, he said. The Son of Man was the favorite term that Jesus used concerning himself. He actually said it 83 times in the gospel. He referred to himself as the Son of Man. Though Jesus was in his glorified body, he recognized it was Jesus, one like the Son of Man. Although John saw Jesus as one like the Son of Man, he was not the same as when he knew him upon the earth. For John had seen Jesus in his earthly form. In fact, he handled our Lord, saw him at his transfiguration. John had looked upon his disfigured body when he hung upon the cross and he now sees him in his resurrected glory. 
In 1 John 1, verses 1 and 2, John speaks about Jesus saying, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life, the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. Now John sees Jesus in the fullness of his glory. In the fullness of his glory as he describes him in verses 13 through 16. I'm going to break this down for us. And we'll go through each piece that John refers to here. Now I do not believe that John's description in every case should be taken literal. Like having a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth. That would be kind of weird literally taken but we'll look at each piece now we can really see jesus having a garment that's clothed down to his feet that wouldn't be unusual in fact we often read in scripture from the old to new testament seeing people who are robed in a garment and we see the attire of a king or that of a priest being described to us in the bible and so we can deduce Things about the person, about the status of an individual, just by the clothing that they wear. You can see somebody, how they're dressed. You can see whether they have money, if they're able to afford a suit that costs $1,000 or one that costs 99 bucks. Now, I'd heard once that uh, they did a kind of a, a survey between a $1,000 tuxedo and a J.C. Penney $99 tuxedo. They did a comparison, and I, I was actually looking at, and I have, I have my J.C. Penney $99 tuxedo. Because sometimes when I do marriage ceremonies, I, I always ask, what's the attire? What are you guys doing? Are you wearing tuxes or are you going casual? When we were in Hawaii and I did my wedding for my son, John, and his wife, Catherine, it was casual. First time and only time I ever wore flip-flops. They would say slippers to a wedding. And, and I just had a shirt on something like this and no tie. It was very casual. And in fact, after the wedding, one of the aunties there, they call all the older men and women either auntie or uncle, whether they're related to you or not. She came up to me and said, that ceremony was very island it was like a thumbs up. You, from the Midwest, you actually did a good job. Thank you. That wouldn't have been appropriate to wear my $99 tuxedo from J.C. Penney's. But they actually, in this comparison, they said people really couldn't tell the difference. Spend a thousand bucks, sometimes you can tell. We again, Lily and I, in Hawaii, we were at a jewelry store looking for a ring for Lily, a piece that we had purchased a, a portion of it um, and wanted to kind of grab another piece. You know, you have rings and necklaces, ladies, earrings, sometimes guys, things that match like that. And the gal there, were, she was talking about her $250 pair of jeans. They were all ripped up with holes in them. It's like, I don't have to pay $250 to get a pair of jeans to have holes in them and to rip them up. In fact, when mine get ripped up like that, 
I toss them out and I get a new pair and I don't spend 250 bucks for them. Often you can look at somebody's attire, their clothing, determine their lifestyle, the way they're dressed. Sometimes it, it fits them, sometimes it doesn't fit them. And Jesus stood before John now as the high priest of his church and also as the king over the church. He was appropriately fitted with a robe that went down to his feet. As Daniel had seen a similar vision of Jesus in Daniel 10:5, saying, when Daniel said, I lifted up my eyes and looked and saw a certain man clothed down to his feet in linen. Linen was the garment of kings. Linen was the garment of priests. And both positions now being held by Jesus Christ. In John 17:14, he says, these will make war with the lamb and the lamb will overcome them. For he is the Lord of lords. He is the king of kings. And those who are with him are called, chosen, and faithful. Also, we learn in Hebrews 7.26, speaking of Jesus as a priest. There in Revelation 17.14, speaks of Jesus as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. But in Hebrews 7.26, for such a high priest was fitting for us who is holy and harmless and undefiled, separate from sinners and has become higher than the heavens. Jesus Christ, the high priest forevermore. He's girded around the chest with a golden band. Well, back in Bible days, they would actually wear a sash or we would say a belt. When someone wearing a robe was about to go to work, they would cinch it up. They would get it up and out of the way. They would tie it with the sash that they could either work or run. And they kind of get the, get the dress out of the way. I, I'm sure ladies could tell us this, that sometimes when doing certain things, it's easier not to have a dress on than to have one on. But here it, he speaks of a golden band around his chest. This reminded me, first and foremost, that the work of Jesus Christ has been accomplished on the cross. The work is finished. Jesus declared it there on the cross to Telestai. It is finished. Now he has this golden band around his chest. In the Old Testament, we find that the high priest wore an ephod of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet. Combined with this was a breastplate having 12 stones that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And thus when the high priest ministered before the Lord at the temple, he carried over his heart each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And our Lord's breastplate now made of pure gold signifying his majesty. There in Isaiah 11 verse 5, we find that Jesus girds himself with righteousness and faithfulness. Also his head and his hair, white like wool, as white as snow. White hair can refer to wisdom in the Bible. And this connects Jesus also, though, to the vision of Daniel. So we have in the Proverbs, speaking of those who are older, those who are white, those who are gray, of those who are being wise, it doesn't always mean the case. There can be a lot of unwise, white-headed people. But also it can refer to wisdom. But also we find that this connects to Daniel's prophecy. I would just encourage you, and we'll probably refer to it a lot, 
As we go through the book of Revelation, the second half of Daniel, Daniel chapters 7 through 12, talk a lot about end time events. And so it's pretty good to read Daniel 7 through 12. You'll connect a lot of things with the book of Revelation. We'll be going back and forth at times. And here in Daniel 7 verse 9, Daniel says, I watched till thrones were put in place and the ancient of days was seated. His garment was white as snow. His hair, the hair of his head was like pure wool. So the vision connecting to Daniel's vision there in Daniel chapter 7, his hair and his head, white like wool, white as snow, his eyes as flames of fire. Get the contrast there. Imagine a head and hair being white like wool, white as snow and flaming eyes. Again, literally, I don't know. Is his eyes on fire? We'll find out one day when we stand before the Lord. In scripture, fire is seen as a purifier. To endure the flames of the fire signifies that something is pure. And Peter, again, talks about being tested by the fire, as we've already read in 1 Peter 1.7. But also we read from Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 13 through 15, that each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work will, which he has built on, if it endures, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved yet so as through the fire. Fire connects to Jesus' divine judgment, his judgment. As in Matthew 13, 40 through 43, Jesus speaks about in the parable of the wheat and the tares. He says, the son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness. They will be cast into the furnace of fire and there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Let him hear. And so fire can speak of God's divine judgment. Eyes like a flame of fire points to the purity of the gaze of Jesus by which he judges in righteousness. His feet like fine brass as being refined in the furnace. Brass in the Old Testament is often, in the Bible, often connected with judgment, the altar upon which the priest would offer daily sacrifices there in Israel, the one that was outside of the temple proper, the altar that was outside of the temple proper was made of brass. Brass speaks of judgment. Here, Jesus' feet They are described as fine brass. It speaks about the fiery trial, perhaps, of Jesus when he went through there on the cross. Jesus saying in Luke 12, verses 49 and 50, I came to send fire on the earth, and how I wish it were already kindled. But I have a baptism to be baptized with. He's talking about the cross and how distressed I am till it is accomplished. He went through the fiery trial of the cross. 
He was purified, we might say, at that time. Found pure before the Lord. His feet as fine brass, and these same feet will one day tread the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of Almighty God to bring judgment upon this earth, that which is coming. Also, his voice was that of many waters. Twice in Ezekiel, Ezekiel used this phrase to describe the voice of God. In Ezekiel 124 and 43.2, he described the voice of God of that as many waters. Ezekiel 124 says, When they went, I heard the noise of their wings, like the noise of many waters, like the voice of the Almighty. And Jesus, whom with his Father spoke this world into existence, will one day speak words of judgment upon those who do not believe in him, while at the same time he will speak words of comfort to those who call upon his name in life-saving faith, a voice as of many waters, that of power. It reminded me when we were in Africa, we went on this day hike and uh, I'd shared about this before, seeing a herd of elephants. You know, you go to the zoo, you see a couple of elephants. That's cool. When you're in the in Africa and you see about 50 of them, that's real cool. But also we walked up to one of the tributary, tributary let's say it right, heads of the Blue Nile. And where we had this vantage point, we were a little lower, and it was as if the water was coming from nowhere, but it was just a little bit higher. And the force of that water coming down, it was loud. We actually had to shout to talk to one another. The voice of Jesus, loud and mighty. The sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, And again, by Scripture, interpreting Scripture in verse 20, Jesus says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And so in his right hand speaks of power, it speaks of strength. The right hand always speaking of power and might and strength in Scripture, holding uh, the, as it tells us in verse 20, the angels of the seven churches. Being in his right hand, it speaks of a place of protection, a place of acceptance of the Lord. In Psalm 18.35, the word of God tells us, you have given me the shield of your salvation. Your right hand has held me up. Your gentleness has made me great. Your right hand holds me up. Power, might, strength in the right hand. And there's no better place to be than that of in the hand of Jesus. In John 10, 28 and 30, this is not in your notes. Jesus said, and I will give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Out of his mouth, John said, went a sharp two-edged sword. The sword of justice and judgment as seen in Scripture. The very word of God itself in Hebrews 4 verses 12 and 13 tells us that the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword piercing even into the division of the soul and spirit of joints and marrow. 
It is a discerner of thoughts, the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are naked and open to the eye of him to whom they must give account. Revelation 19:15 it tells us now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword and with it he should strike the nations and he himself will rule them with the rod of iron he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness of the wrath of almighty god out of his mouth goes this sharp sword it speaks about the very impact of the word of god god speaks he spoke this world into existence when he speaks, he'll bring judgment upon this world as well. And his countenance, he said, was shining like the sun, shining in its strength. Now, John would have remembered Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration, of seeing Jesus in his glorified form. In Matthew 17, 2, it tells us that Jesus' face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. So too will his countenance shine in the New Jerusalem, where it tells us in Revelation 21:23, the city has no need of the sun nor of the moon to shine in it, for the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light. He shines like the sun. And one day we will see the glorified sun in the glory of his splendor, one day we'll see what John is now describing to us here. He says that he is alive forevermore. In the final verses of this chapter, we find picking up in verse 17 through 20. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying to me, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. The mystery of the seven stars which you saw in my right hand, and of the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. So standing in the presence of Jesus, he said in verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. John was wiped out. I love this because I have heard people personally tell me, perhaps you have heard this as well. They look around at this world and they see the unjust, the unjustness of this world. The inequity, equity is a big word right now in our country, right? They see the inequity and they will say something if they believe in God. When I stand before God, I'm going to have a few things to tell him. When I stand before Jesus and when I get to heaven, he's going to hear, he's going to hear from me. No, I think you're going to be wiped out. I think you'll see the glory of our Savior and you'll be as a dead man, a dead woman and only a man or a woman. You won't be anything else. You'll be wiped out. Daniel had a similar reaction when he stood in the presence of an angel in Daniel chapter 10. Ezekiel had the same reaction in Ezekiel 1 when he saw the throne of God. All these men saw these glorified beings, 
Daniel seeing an angel, Ezekiel seeing the throne of God, John in the presence of Jesus, and they became as dead, the way that John put it here. And though many people may boast what they're going to tell God when they see him, I believe when they stand before him in judgment, they will be like John, like Daniel, like Ezekiel. They too will fall dead at his feet or as dead before him. But here's the beauty. He said, but his right hand lifted me. Remember the right hand, the hand of might, the hand of strength, the hand of power, his right hand. It reminds us of Matthew when he gave the parable of the sheep and the goats. In Matthew 25, 34, Matthew tells us Jesus speaking, those who are on my right, he will say, come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But those who are on his left, Matthew 25, 41 The goats, he will say, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. His right hand lifted me up. I think it's significant. It's not only a right hand of power, of strength. It's also a right hand, the sheep and the goats, the right hand of acceptance. The right hand lifted me up. He laid his right hand on me, verse 17. He said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Verse 18, I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. I have the keys of Hades and of death. Paul wrote in Romans 6, verses 9 and 10, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died once and for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. The death that he died, he died once and for all. Christ Jesus died once. He does not have to die again for the sins of the world. When he cried out again in John's gospel, to Telestai, it is finished. The work of the cross, the redemption of mankind, the price has been paid. The death that he died, he died once for all time but also once for all. For whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The death that he died, he died once for whosoever, for all, anyone who calls upon the name of Jesus. Being victorious over his death, Jesus now holds the keys of Hades and death. Death, it speaks about a separation of the soul from the body. It speaks about a separation of man from God. Hades speaks about in the Bible, and shield would be its equivalent in the Old Testament. Hades in the Greek connected to the New Testament. A region of departed souls. Jesus, now he has the keys of both Hades and of death. When Jesus died... In Ephesians, Paul tells us that he set the captives free. Those who had departed prior to the work of Jesus upon the cross, those who had believed in the coming Messiah, who had died with that blessed hope, Jesus came and and set the captives free. He has the keys of death and Hades. 
Proverbs 15.11 says, Hell and destruction are before the Lord. So how much more the hearts of the Son of Men? Having the keys of Hades and death speaks about Jesus' power over the grave and God's coming judgment upon this world. In Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15, it says, Then Hades and death were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone who is not found written in the book of life was cast in to the lake of fire. This will not be the last time we look at the importance of Jesus having the keys of Hades and death. Verse 19, I put this in our bulletin. It's something I just want you to get locked in. This will be our memory verse, not for next month, but the month after that. The key to the book of Revelation is found in this one verse, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, chapter 1. The things which are, chapters 2 and 3, regarding the churches, and the things which will take place after this, found in chapters 4 through 22. And so a divine outline given to us in Scripture, Revelation 1.19. And it closes out this mystery revealed, the mystery of the seven stars that John saw in the right hand of Jesus, the seven golden lampstands. He said the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands that you saw are the seven churches. So angels, it can refer to the word messenger, one who is sent. Angelos is the Greek word, and so it could either be a Heavenly messenger, it can also represent the pastors over these churches. I kind of like that, that the Lord holds the pastor, pastors of the various fellowships throughout the world. He holds them in his right hand. It's a good place to be when it's the right hand of acceptance, right? Hebrews 1.14, he says, of angels, of spiritual angels, though, Hebrews 1.14, the word of God tells us, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister to those who will inherit salvation? Angels, the angels of God. So whether referring to the angels of God who are watching over these seven churches or the pastors of the seven churches, they're both in the hands of Jesus, which is a great place to be. The seven lampstands, he says, these are the seven churches. We're going to see this in Revelation chapters 2 through 3 concerning the seven churches. And we will have the suffering church and the church of love, of brotherly love, but also there'll be the churches that are referred to as the compromising church, the corrupt church, the dead church, the lukewarm church, the loveless church. And even though these five things that he mentioned regarding five of these churches that really isn't good, the loveless church, hey, yeah, I know that church, they're the loveless church. You wouldn't want to go there. The compromising church, yeah, my buddy was telling me about that church. They're compromising on the word of God. Don't go there. And we could go through the list and say the same thing, corrupt church, dead church, lukewarm church. Notice that they were all being held in the hand of Jesus. And they were before Jesus, represented by the golden lampstands. Jesus actually was standing in their midst. They may have had bad things going for them, 
or good things going for them. The best thing going for them was that Jesus was in their midst. Matthew 18:20 says, For where two or more are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. And may we also be touched by Jesus' right hand of acceptance, be found in the right hand of Jesus' acceptance. And the way that that happens is through faith in him, through faith in Jesus Christ. It should be, as we learn in verses 10 and 11, when worshiping together on the Lord's day or any day, that when we are worshiping the Lord, we should expect the Spirit of God to speak into our hearts. When worshiping Jesus, when we gather together, especially as the body of Christ, we should come expectantly, expecting to hear from Jesus. And the glorified Savior in verses 12 through 16, know that one day every one will see the glorified Son in the splendor of his majesty. And being alive forevermore, verses 17 through 20, it's my prayer that we would all be touched by the right hand of Jesus' acceptance. John said, I fell before him as dead, and his right hand lifted me up. The way that the right hand of the Father lifts us up is through faith in Jesus Christ and his work in our lives. Let's go ahead and stand together. Here at Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, we have a church motto that is believe, receive, grow, and go. And so I'd like us just to go through our motto together. The path of acceptance comes through, first and foremost, we need to believe that there is a God. So we say together, Hebrews 11:6. but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For those who come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Hebrews 11:6. We have to believe that God is. Next, we need to receive Jesus Christ into our hearts. And we say together, Romans 5:17. For if by one man's offense death reigned through the one, much more those who receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one Jesus Christ. Romans 5:17. It's not enough simply to believe in God. You have to receive Jesus Christ into your heart. But once a believer, we need to grow in our faith. And this is where so many fail. And so we say together, 2 Peter 3:18, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. 2 Peter 3:18. This is a process of growing. Uh, we can do this daily. I heard one of the persons that I listened to quite a bit throughout this year, he said, every day just take 20 minutes and learn something. Now imagine if we take 20 minutes and learn something today, maybe you want to learn what, what is critical race theory anyways. Take 20 minutes and, and learn. What are they talking about? What are they talking about when they talk about being woke? Did somebody wake them up from sleeping? Take 20 minutes and learn something. But when, may I encourage you also, take 20 minutes and learn truth from God's word. Grow. 
And then finally, we have to go. And we say together, Matthew 28, 19 and 20, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. Amen. Matthew 28, 19 and 20. So those who are listening perhaps on radio today or you're watching through Facebook, maybe you're going to hear this message at another time and the Lord's pricked your heart. You're not sure if you could be found in the right hand of acceptance, his right hand, not mine. You have questions regarding faith, please email us at cclv at comcast.net. That stands for Calvary Chapel of Lake Villa, cclv at comcast.net. Also, if you'd like to support our ministry or you'd like to know more about our ministry, you can find out information at our church's website at cclv.org, cclv.org. And you can search around the website there to find out information regarding this church. This coming Wednesday at 7 p.m., we're going to be in Matthew here for the adults in Matthew 27, verses 1 through 31. Jesus's public trial, we'll be looking at that. Matthew 27, 1 through 31. So this week I determined my next step. We're in Matthew 27 in the midweek study. It only has 28 chapters, so I'm going to have to go somewhere else. And uh, I'm going to go to the book of Genesis. And we're going to begin looking at the book of beginnings. We're looking at the book in the end. We're going to start back at the beginning. And I think it's probably been about 20 years since I've taught from Genesis. So I look forward to uh, being in the book of Genesis with you once again. And we're going to, I'm going to try to roll through it. I don't think we have a lot of time. Now, I will not be like Pastor Chuck prior to his death. He thought, we're not going to have a lot of time here. So he taught five chapters in the midweek service. And that's a quick pace. I don't think I could do that. But we'll, we'll go at a decent rate. Coming up very soon. Let's go ahead and pray, and then we'll close out in worship. Father, I thank you for uh, your word that you have spoken to us today. Is my prayer, Lord, just standing out to me in this vision that John had of you, our Savior, Jesus. That of the right hand, the seven stars. And that of your right hand, lifting John when he fell before you as dead. The right hand in the Bible, which so often speaks of power, strength, and might. For John, in that very hour, became a hand of acceptance. Lord, I pray that we would experience that same acceptance from you. That, Lord, we would know the truth and that the truth would set us free. We look to you, Lord, for our hope and for our help. Help us, Lord, to be a church that looks to you in all things. During these last days, we pray. In the name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen.